Our text this morning is from Haggai chapter 1. It might seem like an obscure text. It's a text that I read and struggled through this past year as I dealt with my cancer diagnosis. But unlike the passage I preached in July over Lamentations 3, which was a passage of encouragement, this chapter was actually a chapter that challenged me as a Christian in my walk. So I present that to you this morning as you consider what Haggai has to say to us as modern-day Christians as we walk in faithfulness to serve him. We'll read the passage again. Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Hear the word of God. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so, puts them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I might be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, on the oil, and what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares Yahweh. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord, their hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. May God bless the reading of his word. It is absolutely true and is given to you from your Father in heaven because he loves each of you. Let's go to the Father in prayer. Father, we come before you because it is good and right to do so. You are our life. We owe everything to you. You are our hope, our mercy. You are our strong arm. You are our salvation. You are our desire. 
We ask that you would meet us in this place, that you would teach us, instruct us, and may we have ears to hear, and not just be hearers only, but doers as well. Meet us, Christ. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Way back, way back in the spring of 2009, when Kendall and I were living in Atlanta, we bought our first home. Since our eldest son, Riley, was close to being born, we needed more room to accommodate our ever-expanding family. We were also tired of the transient lifestyle that comes with living in rentals. So finally, owning our own home was a tremendous blessing. It was a relief. It was fantastic. Now, as exciting as it was to buy that house in 2009, there were downsides to running the show. There was no more landlord to complain to. I had my own yard work to do. There were unforeseen bills and unforeseen household repairs. As I recall, within the first few days of moving into that house, our air conditioner stopped working. A pipe had cracked and dumped water in the garage. And ants had invaded our kitchen by the thousands. A few months later, in the fall of 2009, when Riley was just a few months old, a 500-year storm blew through Atlanta and dumped 24 inches of rain in one night. I recall bailing out hundreds, if not maybe a thousands of buckets of water from our crawl space all night, hoping that our house wouldn't flood. Now, some of you are giggling, some of you are externally nodding, some of you are internally nodding because you know what it's like to own a home or to purchase a home or be in that process. It takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of money, and it takes oodles of time. And while owning your own home is indeed a fantastic blessing, it is at times a big distraction. And this domicile distraction does not even include the time and energy expended on all the other responsibilities that we here collectively shoulder. Responsibilities toward family and work and school, running kids to private lessons, running kids to athletic competitions, after work engagements, personal appointments, lunch dates, and the list goes on and on and on. After a while, you start to realize that your life runs you. Beloved, if you're anything like me, then you probably at times also have a life full of distraction, full of disruption, and that can turn you into an unfocused person. And when called by God to focus on the, the weightier things of life, it's quite easy to minor in the majors and major in the minors. I think I could probably serve as a case study and scientific exploration on that. You see, like the Jewish exilic community in the opening chapter of Haggai, we often get distracted at times. We wrongly prioritize our lives. Sometimes we put our needs and desires above those things which God deems most important. And while we may not be rebuilding the Temple of Solomon, God does call us to build up Christ's church. My friends, we are at times an unfocused people. We are unfocused because of personal sin and because of the fallen world in which we live in. And because we are an unfocused people, we must, at all times, daily, set our eyes on Christ and seek him for help and salvation. 
So where's our starting point? Where do we begin? Well, I have three points I want to share with you this morning, three gospel truths that I want to communicate. But before we do that, we need a small history lesson. In 539 BC, roughly 540 years before Christ's birth, there was a great victory in Babylon. King Cyrus of the Persian Empire had just conquered the Babylonians and he took possession of all the lands from India up to the foothills of Greece. And this victory was foretold by God through Jeremiah 70 years earlier. You see, God had used the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem and the Temple of Solomon. And with that destruction, Judah's leaders, their people, even their most promising citizens were set into exile. God disciplined his people for a season because of their syncretistic worship. That's a $20 word, which means they merge or they marry the religions of God, the religion of God with the religions of their pagan neighbors. So God used the Babylonians as a corrective measure. Now, there was a second part, a second portion of Jeremiah's prophecy. It also foretold the eventual fall of Babylon to the Persians. So once King Cyrus took the throne, he conquered Babylon. However, the Babylonians and the Persians were quite different in their style of governing. The Persians believed it easier to rule people if they were allowed to follow their own religion and customs. So these newly acquired lands by the Persians, by the Persian king, they, they set the people free. They returned them to their own control. So the exiles of Judah returned back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and God's holy temple. You can read about that in Ezra chapter 3, but here's a small portion of that passage. In verse 10 and 11, it states, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord. And they sang responsively. They praised and gave thanks to the Lord. They said, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. You can still see part of that foundation today in Jerusalem. So the temple foundation was laid soon after the return. Unfortunately, that is when the trouble began, especially from the locals. You see, the locals were the byproducts of intermarriage between a portion of God's people that were left behind during the Babylonian exile and, and previous exiles with the Assyrians. And then other foreigners were moved into those very areas that the Israelites and the Judaites once lived in. So these people, these locals, they were no longer or they were never followers of the Lord. And so they were afraid that if the temple was rebuilt, that they would then be ruled by Judah. So due to conflict with the neighbors and for other reasons we will soon examine, God's people became unfocused. In fact, nothing else was done on the temple for almost two decades, 18 years to be exact. Look back at our passage in verse 1 and 2. In Haggai, it says, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Serubabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, 
and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say, time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Even though Haggai was a minor prophet, unlike Ezekiel or Jeremiah, all of God's prophets were responsible for three things. The worship of God, speaking God's word, and making sure God's justice reigns supreme in the land. So basically, the prophets, Haggai, was responsible to hold the kings, the priests, and the people accountable. So during a two-day new moon festival, and remember Israel followed a lunar calendar, the farmers and everyone else were resting. God sends the prophet Haggai to the high priest and to the governor. You see, God has a complaint against his people. Again, verse 2 states, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now this, this statement, it's, it's not a demand. It's not a request made by God. It's, it's actually a declaration. It's a declaration that reveals the people's unfocused hearts. And God, he's, he's frustrated with their unfocused hearts. That's evidenced by the fact of what he calls them. He says, these people and not my people. It's kind of like what Adam said to God in the Eden, in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, Adam states, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Or it's kind of like what Kendall and I will say about our kids. You need to get your kids together. They need to straighten up and fly right. The problem for the Jewish returnees is that they think it's just not time to build. And yet it's been 18 years since they quit working. So even though the temple is unfinished, in their mind, there's just no time. Have you ever noticed that the longer you put something off, the harder it is to get started again? For me, church ministry has been a great example. You go a while without serving in the church, and there can be a lot of guilt, and it's hard to get back into that after having missed so much. That's been the case with me at times. Maybe you felt that way as well. So the Israelites' response of it's just not time is it's really a corporate confession of sin. It's kind of like when our kids tell us they don't have time to do their homework because they've just run out of time. In actuality, it's an explanation. It's an attempt to mask guilt. You see, the returnees, they have some problems. And now finally, after our history lesson, we arrive at our first point. So what is that point? It's simply this. When we are an unfocused people, we become a reluctant people. And this reluctance by the people, it's expressed in five ways. And maybe these ways might resonate with you, as they did with me. First, as I said, the locals do not want Jerusalem rebuilt. And the Jews were, they were God's people. A simple examination of the Old Testament shows that they often faced resistance, and in the face of that resistance, they were afraid. Our Savior, Jesus, hits on this theme about the reality of the Christian's life in John. In John 15, specifically, he states, 
If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you, because you are not of the world. But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. A second reason. The people were actually poor. They had experienced many, many bad harvests. We just read in Ezra that started out with a really robust temple building fund, if we can think of it that way, but it dwindled away. The project was costly, and this frustrated the returnees. So that either they were unable or they were unwilling to give more. They wanted it to be easier, but it just wasn't. Third, though costly and facing opposition and fearful, Exhaustion was a real main reason for the stoppage of work. The returnees had become weary because they had lost focus. During those 18 years, they completely lost sight of what they were supposed to do to rebuild the temple. But the reality is that they had forgotten that God's glory, his majesty, his power, his dominion would dwell in that place. And it housed the very essence, the very presence of God. Because they had forgotten this truth, their focus turned to other things. So in their tiredness, they had forgotten their high calling. There was nothing more important for them to do. But this this just isn't, isn't an Old Testament issue. It's a New Testament issue as well. In fact, Paul reminded the Galatians, he says this. He says, do not grow weary in doing good. This reality, it should serve as a warning sign to you and me. This can happen to anyone, including us modern-day Christians. A fourth reason. This continual weariness created discouragement amongst the people. Is there anything more discouraging than a group of people showing up for an event, say like a work party, but only a few people stay behind for the actual cleanup? You see, the reluctance of the Jews, our reluctance, it stems from discouragement. But if you're the one that stays behind to clean, you're you're likely only discouraged if you think others are not pulling their weight. And if others are not committed, you might conclude that it's just not time for you anymore. Consequently, you may then consider quitting. Whoever the worker or the person who quits because of discouragement, they quit because they have taken their eyes off the prize. For our Jewish returnees, it's forgetting about having the glory and the presence of God with them in the city, in the temple. For us modern-day Christians, it's us taking us off our eyes off the prize of loving Jesus in and through our service to one another. And finally, the fifth reason. Because the harvests have been poor, the Jews, they channel all their energy all their time into food production. There's no time for temple reconstruction. For us, that may translate into overworking and thus having to pull back from church involvement. I know for me, it's been easy to fall into this way of thinking and acting. It's been a trap. For many years, I've let my studies dominate my time in church involvement. Maybe this is also the case for some of you. But there's also another problem. This leads us to our second point, which is this. When we are an unfocused people, a reluctant people, we then become 
an inward people. Look again at verses 3 through 4. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Somehow, against all odds, in the midst of all that opposition, all that fear, dealing with low wages and poor harvests and discouragement and being way too busy, the returnees, they've managed to pull off the unthinkable. While it was not yet right time to rebuild God's temple, there was certainly time to pursue their own domestic affairs. Of course, it's, it's not like the returned Jewish exiles failed to sacrifice. On the contrary, financial peace was absent. It was nowhere to be found. They were living in the midst of droughts and horrible harvests, and the locals despised them. The problem is, because they were unfocused, they became an inward people, deciding to forgo the temple in order to live in paneled houses. While a seemingly innocuous term, the phrase paneled houses represents the idea of completion. It's the finishing touches. It's like having uh, the polish on your house. The crown linoleum is set. Everything is perfect. So their homes, they're not being built anymore. They're actually fully complete. That's what's being communicated in the text. While the temple itself remains only at the beginning stages of construction, it's the platform. There's nothing above it yet. Let's return to what the Lord says at verses 5 and 7. He repeats himself, which means this is important. He states, Thus says the Lord, Consider your ways. And that's sandwiched in verses 6 in between. It says, You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. You see, the returnees, they have, they have worked themselves to death. They have worked themselves down to the bones. But despite their efforts, they have not progressed at all. Why has this happened? What's going on? Why have they gotten nowhere fast? I think the answer is quite clear. They have forgotten God and his temple. They become unfocused and mixed up in their priorities. And that's why immediately in verse 8, God says this through the prophet. He says, go to the hills and bring wood and build the house. That's what you need to build the temple. That I might take pleasure in it and that I might be glorified, says Yahweh. You see, God's, his pleasure, his delight is sharing himself with us. And we see this in the gospel, in our union, in our union with Christ. So we shouldn't obey because it's our duty, but obey because we pleasure in God as he pleasures in us. You see, these returned exiles have forgotten their greatest need is the temple. It's God's presence. It's not paneled houses nor robust harvests. Verses 9 and 11 state this. You looked for much, and behold, it, it came to little. And when, you brought the, when I bought a home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because my house lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. 
Therefore, the heavens above have withheld the dew. The earth has withheld its produce. I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain, the wine, the oil, everything that comes forth on man and beast and all their labors. The Lord was behind that. They hoped for prosperity, yet their paneled houses and their toil were, were blown away. The reason's clear. They were unfocused. They were inward. Now, I'm not trying to say, nor is the text, that home ownership is bad. That's actually not the point. Haggai is using this imagery here to illustrate the fact that the people first thought of themselves and secondly of the Lord. Here's the irony. The irony is that they planned to build the temple at the right time when they were prospering enough to build out of their surplus. But because they sought their own domestic prosperity first, that time never arrived and the surplus in their storehouses withered away. And then notice this. Since they neglected the temple and the worship of God, he took away the very things that people might have used for the biblical work and worship in the temple. He stymied the grain and the wine and the oil and the first fruits and the livestock production. All of those things that were used in the sacrificial system in Old Testament Israel. Sadly, many fail to serve because they believe they lack the time or the means, though they have every intention to do so once they straighten things out. But many of those people, they never arrive at that point because God is sovereign over heavenly blessings. I personally know this struggle, and I've fallen into this trap myself. I think this is one of the reasons why the Lord ordained for me to have cancer this past year to help me refocus on the Lord, to put away my reluctance, and to help me turn outward again. This may be why some of you are experiencing various trials in your life. Sometimes the Lord frustrates our plans because it is the very best thing for you and me. His intervention is an act of love and mercy. His intervention is grace-filled refocusing toward him and his desires. So what's the solution? Well, this is our final point, and it's this. Because we are an unfocused people, a reluctant people, and at times an inward people, we must call upon the Lord to stir our spirits to then become an obedient people. So how do they finally come around? What did they do, Jeff? Well, two things. First, careful thought led them to obedience because careful thought led them to a fear of Yahweh that's in the text. Not to fear the locals and not to fear their circumstances. This is ultimately the purpose of discipline. Just as I discipline my boys and you all discipline your children, so the Lord disciplines us, that we may, in verse 7 and 5, consider our ways, and then we respond by seeking his face. However, there's still something deeper that causes this change of heart. Because I know myself and you know yourselves and sometimes even the harshness of discipline doesn't always deter us from doing wrong and conversely seeking to then do what is right. So why the change of heart? What's different? Look back at verses 13 and 14. Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I... And with you, declares the Lord, and the Lord, he stirred up 
their spirits. He stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. He stirred up the spirit of the governor and of Joshua and of the people, the remnant. And then they came and worked on the house of the Lord, their God. So it was the Lord who stirred them up to obedience. It was Yahweh. Whenever you are prompted to pray, assist another in need, encourage someone that is discouraged, serve in some capacity, it's ultimately Christ that gives you that desire. The Lord stirs us up toward good deeds just as he stirred up the returnees to rebuild. As mentioned earlier, Jerusalem was destroyed with thousands of people deported to Babylon. However, right after that promise of destruction, God promised the salvation of a remnant, while he answers, which he answers by using the Persian king, Cyrus. And he's fulfilling these verses right, this promise right here in these verses. And the remnant, they're not saved because of their great obedience or because they are the ones that initiated the temple rebuild. The remnant is saved because of the Lord's faithfulness, his consistency, his constant presence, his love, his compassion and mercy and grace. He is always the initiator. He is always the first mover. He sent Haggai to prophesy, to challenge the leaders to lead, to challenge the people's inward living, and he stirred up their hearts. You see, my friends, the bad news is, if you think you can put off the work of God for your own personal endeavors, whether that's paying off debt because you think it keeps you from being generous, or whether it's seeking to solve your own problems first before serving others, or whether it's pursuing self-discovery, thinking that you need to get yourself grounded before helping another, you're actually fooling yourself and living an unfocused life of distraction. I've been down that road. It doesn't work. But the good news is, my friends, and I have such incredible good news for you, is that Jesus Christ died on a cross for your sins. Even for the sin of living an unfocused, reluctant, and inwardly driven life. And Christ's forgiveness frees us from thinking we have to get our lives right before we are used by Jesus for eternal purposes, for his glory, accepted into heavenly places, and for the benefit of others. You see, beloved, God takes unfocused, reluctant, and inwardly distracted people and changes our hearts that we seek him first. And when we do that, he responds with the great reward. He promises to dwell with us in and through us. You see, the worship of the Lord was the prime active, primary activity of God's people in the Old Testament, which is why the temple had such a prominent place. However, it's no different for us now except for this fact. The temple that God now resides in is not made with human hands, but is our own mortal bodies. And because of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are now no longer bound to a building of stone and wood, but we house the very presence of the living God within our being for those that God has stirred up faith through Christ Jesus. What an amazing reality 
that the God of the universe would live inside you and me. What a privilege. What a treasure. What a mind-blowing concept that Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, would dwell amongst and within sinners. Knowing this fact, maybe never ever become unfocused, reluctant, or inward, but by the strength and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we repent of our sins, rest in his righteousness alone, and through Jesus, rightly follow God's leading and build up his church all of our days. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we love you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you that you take sinners such as us and you change our hearts. You change us from being unfocused to focus, reluctant to movers, and you take us from being inward to moving outward. Father, you're so good to us. Lord, meet us at this place. May we serve you all our days, and may we glorify your Son. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.